Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Tom. Thank you. Uh, Tom, compulsive overeater. It's great to be here. Uh, somebody mentioned uh, just a second ago, listening to this podcast, um, and so have I. I actually just moved back to the US. Um, I was living overseas for nine years, and this podcast was a lifeline for a lot of us. And it's funny because uh, most recently I was in China. I was in China when the pandemic broke out. And um, I used to travel three hours every weekend to get to Shanghai so I could go to the only OA meeting in Southern China. And uh, I mean, sometimes it would just be me and one other person in the room, me and two other people in the room. I mean, the fellowship is incredibly small. I mean, one thing I hope you really recognize is the abundance of choices you have in recovery here and what a blessing that is. So, you know, I mean, I have lived in places where I was the only OA in the country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so anyway, it's just kind of funny because it would be me and one other person in the room or me and two other people in the room and we'd be looking around at each other you know, when it was speaker week, like, I don't want to hear your story again. I don't want to tell my story. You know what I mean? And we're like, oh, let's listen to a podcast. And it would be this, you know. So I just really want to say it's what a service it is. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't know just how far it extends and, and what a lifeline it is for people in places where recovery is not abundant. Um, so anybody who is out there listening to this in a place where you are a loner or one of just a few people in OA, um, I understand. I really do. But there are ways to stay absent no matter where you are in the world. You know, when I was first going overseas, my sponsor said, you know, there, there are no meetings there, but meetings are just one of the tools. You've got eight other tools that you can use to stay absent. So this is a fantastic tool. Thank you very much for that. Um, some simple stuff. My anniversary is, um, my abstinent date is February 14, 2009. And I am keeping off 60 pounds from my peak weight. Um, and I'm working on the steps for the second time in this program. And I have a sponsor who I've been working with for um, four or five years now. And, uh, and I have sponsees, just one right now. Um, but sponsorship is any guy in OA knows is a big part of your, uh, your recovery life. You know, if you want the, uh, the hand of, of OA to be there. Um, you know, I was on the kitchen sink meeting this morning and a guy was talking about the family that he grew up in and whether or not that contributed to his compulsive overeating. And it was just kind of not quite sure. And, and I know there are plenty of people in this program who had perfectly reasonable, healthy, loving, nurturing families. That is not my story. <laughs> you know, my house was a war zone. And uh, I think I reached for the food as kind of a pacifier, as a way to uh, feel better, because not feeling good was a regular part of growing up in the house that I grew up in. Um, so whether or not it was the cause, I don't know, but I think that kind of environment really gave rise to addictive behavior. 
And I think because I was so young, food was the first thing that was available to me. You know, and it wasn't until I was much older and access to alcohol and drugs that that stuff took over. Um, and my story in OA really comes, you know, once I'm sober and that stuff is gone and all that's left is the food, you know, uh, which I think is a pretty common story for, for a lot of us. There are a lot of double and triple winners. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess I just didn't think of food ever as sustenance. It was pleasure. Uh, it brought comfort, um, you know, and uh, I always think of one time I was driving home with friends from school and high school and we're driving by a fast food restaurant. I asked the driver to pull in so I could get something to eat. And another guy in the car said, you're going to be home in five minutes. Why don't you just get something to eat once you get home? And my thought was, but there's nothing good to eat there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I want to go here because I have a certain need to fill. And uh, it's got nothing to do with just making sure my hunger is satisfied. I want an experience, you know what I mean? Because that experience brings me uh, comfort and joy, like I was saying. So I just kind of always had that relationship. And even when I, before I got to AA and I've been sober for almost 20 years now, um, I can very specifically remember driving by one of these fast food restaurants and blinking and then being at the drive up window paying for food. You know, like if you're, if you read the big book, it talks about driving by a liquor store and the next thing you know, you're at the register. I had the food equivalent as well. Um, and that happened to me so many times. So that powerlessness I think was just a part of my eating for my whole life. It's just, you don't really notice it as much maybe um, when you're younger and maybe especially if you're a guy. Um, but anyway, I got sober and that's when it started because uh, when you get sober, you get your conscience back. And uh, I was sober for um, a few years and I noticed that I was starting to break promises that I made to myself around food that I used to make around liquor. Um, I was choosing food over relationship. I was spending lots of time alone. I wasn't going out of my way to, to build relationships, make friends, have you know, good relationship with colleagues, I would get out of work, I would go buy food and I would go home and I would eat by myself. Um, but I think because of the getting the conscience back, I just felt I could feel the guilt, like I knew something was terribly wrong. So of course, I would go on diets. And then I would lose 10 pounds and I would feel better and think I got this and then start eating again, the, the weight would go back up. Um, you know, and nothing was worse than when someone would point out um, oh, are you on a diet again? I can tell the, the, the type of food that you're eating is, is different. Um, uh, you know, which would only uh, exacerbate my shame uh, about my eating. There was just a, a wild unmanageability around my eating, um, hiding it. When I was at work, I used to do this great thing where I would go to the vending machines and buy all this food and eat it on the way back to my desk. So I would arrive at my desk with just one package, you know? Um, it, was, it was just like alcohol and drugs in the sense that if all I had to do was think about something and it would flip that switch and then I had to have it, you know? And it didn't matter what time of day it was. It didn't matter what I needed to do in order to get that thing. I mean, I was living in New York at one period in my sobriety and, you know, 
I wouldn't think twice about getting on a train and going a hundred blocks south to go get that one thing that I was thinking that I absolutely needed, you know? Um, so there was just a, a huge sense of powerlessness and, uh, and defeat and shame in my eating. And so I actually went to an AA roundup in Miami one year and all fellowships were, were represented. And so they're having an, o meet, an OA meeting and I went and sat and listened. But what I did is I compared, I didn't identify. And all, uh, all I could think about was how different I was from everybody else in that room and why I didn't belong there, you know? So I left really learning nothing and then went home to New York and kept eating the same way for another year until I went back to that, that roundup and went to another OA meeting and heard just a little bit more. And I think um, for me, the, the pain of eating finally outweighed the pain of not eating and I was willing to go to a meeting. Um, and while you'll say that, I'm sure you've heard that um, in recovery, the credits don't transfer from one, one program to another, um, I still knew what I needed to do. So I went to that first meeting, raised my hand, introduced myself. Somebody came up to me after the meeting, said hello, told me to go another meeting a few days later, which I did. And then at that meeting, another guy came up to me after the meeting and said, oh, so-and-so said you were going to be here, are you Tom? And we talked for a while. And right there on the spot, he, he helped me figure out what my abstinence was going to be, literally took me shopping for, you know, to a, a grocery store that he went to that he, was, he knew was safe and then sent me home with two bags of groceries and, and put me on a food plan like, like that. And uh, I was doing really well for a few months um, until basically he was a how guy. So he was no white flour, no sugar and all that stuff. And I have since come to realize that um, that food plan doesn't work for me because white flour doesn't trigger the phenomenon of craving in me that it may for other people. And, and so what happened was, is I was at the US Open, big tennis tournament. I was there for double sessions. I was there all day. The only thing I really had to eat was from the vending, you know, booths that they had. And it turns out I ended up eating something that had white flour in it. And he said, you had the white flour and if you had it, then you got to change your date. And uh, all I could think about was, I don't want to change my date over something that's not a big deal to me, you know? So if I have to do that, then I'm just going to go eat what I want to eat. And then I'll come back and start over, you know, let me go have the things that I really love. And uh, that's exactly what I did. And then couldn't get abstinent for another three years, you know? So I always think about the way our disease talks to us, telling us that we can have just this one, that we can kind of manage dessert at this function, that, you know, we can, it's always lying to us. It gives us this illusion that we're in control and that we can kind of snap back onto our diet basically whenever we want. Uh, and I learned the hard way that that was not the case because it was three years of just utter demoralization of eating to the depths of despair and shame, coming back to recovery, begging for help, putting my hand up. Hi, this is Tom, compulsive overeater, day one. Oh, welcome back, Tom. And I mean, the level of shame in being a chronic relapser. I mean, I, I won't speak for other people, but it was terrible for me. So it was really only pain that drove me back to the meetings. Um, 
because I just didn't want to raise my hand. I just, I just assumed everybody was sick of hearing that I was on day one. And, uh, and what I would do is I would beg for help and I would get it and people would help me get back on my, my feet and I would lose a little bit of weight. My life would be going well. And then I would take my will back and then I would go back out and the whole cycle would start over. And, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it just culminated. I was on a trip to Italy for Christmas of 2008 and, um, I ate my way through Italy. Um, I mean, it was just terrible, really. Um, but what was funny was, is this, for a huge chunk of this three years, there was this guy um, who would call me out of the blue, who I did not know, who I had never met, who had taken my name and number from the, uh, you know, the We Care booklet. And he would call and I would not answer. And he would say, Hi, Tom, this is Michael. I'm just calling to see how you're doing. Have a blessed abstinent day. And uh, he called so often that I finally put his name in my phone so I would know who was calling, you know? And uh, I was in the, the depths of my relapse, so I wasn't gonna pick up, but I'd be like, oh, that crazy guy Mike is calling me again. Um, you know, I, I would just think it's hilarious, but I was in such pain when I came home from Italy that, um, I picked up the phone and I called him and I was like, hi, Mike, it's Tom, you know, because I knew who he was. He had no idea who I was. He had absolutely no idea because he was just making his calls the way we make calls. You know what I mean? Like it, it's just service. He was just doing something for himself and trying to help out where he could. But what was funny is, is we ended up speaking over um, the next few weeks and he got me back to meetings. I asked him to sponsor me, he couldn't take me on, but he did get me back to meetings and we just lost touch. Um, and then six months later, I had six months of abstinence back in the program and I was sitting at a meeting and somebody across the room raised their hand and they said, hey, I'm Michael, I'm a compulsive overeater and I recognized his voice. We'd still never met in person. And so I was able to go up to him after that meeting and say, um, you know, thank you. I'm the guy that you helped get back. And uh, so I've been absent ever since then. That was February 14, 2009. Um, and I came in and I did what I was told. I went to meetings. I got service commitments. I got a sponsor. I did the steps. I got a food plan that worked for me. You know, I really think a food plan is something that I figure out with the help of a sponsor and it's under, underpinned with honesty. If I have those two things, then what I've figured out works for me is is okay with my higher power as well and um i just started to get better you know the weight started to fall off i mean i really thought that i only needed to lose 20 pounds and in the first year i lost 50. i did not think i had 50 pounds to lose and i did not diet i just the, the quality of my food uh improved greatly and i stuck to the plan and did what i was told and and i got better um i mean it was just kind of amazing um yeah, I mean, I, I just, the, the difference between how I felt about myself every time I had to use a different belt notch or buy a different size pair of pants or whatever it was, just the absolute shame of like, I'm just going to squeeze into these pants because I can't deal with having a 38 inch waist. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then how I felt about myself when I came in and I was doing the work and I was feeling better. You know what I mean? It was, 
esteemable acts helped build my esteem. Um, but yeah, I also had a, a really positive experience with the steps. You know, I'd done them in AA, but I learned a lot going through them in OA again because my sponsor just had a, a slightly different tweak on things that really helped me put things in perspective. Like, you know, this idea of the fifth step. Well, first thing I'll say is, you know, you come in, you look at the steps on the board and you think, um, okay, I remember for me, like I'm never gonna be able to do a fourth step and a fifth step, that's just like too big. Like there's no way I could do that inventory. I'm not gonna tell people all the horrible things that I did. They're, they're not gonna wanna be my friend or even be in the room with me, whatever. Um, but I, come to, I came to find out later that actually step nine was the doozy and four and five was just like a prelude for nine. So if you're scared of four and five, don't worry about it. The real, the real stuff comes later. Um, but what was great when we were going over my, my four step uh, and a fifth step with this sponsor was I did it through the big book and I would write down like, you know, problem, self-esteem, personal relations. And he would say, that's not enough. What's the exact nature of your wrong? What happened here? And we would dig and dig and dig to find out the root of what the problem was. You know, where was fear operating on a deep level? When did that kick up selfishness? When did that kick up the survival strategies, otherwise known as character defects, that I had been using to navigate my life for the entirety of my life? Um, you know what I mean? So I came up with this whole list of these true character defects. So by the time I got to six, I knew what I wanted to let go of because I didn't want those things wreaking havoc in my life anymore. Um, and it was truly profound. And then we went to seven and I'm pretty much an atheist agnostic. And so this idea of a God just taking my character defects never really, you know, my shortcomings. I didn't understand it, you know? And, and so the way he explained it to me was, he's like, you know, we're going to say this quick prayer. And then after that, because you have an, a certain awareness as a, the result of the work that we've done together, your higher power, as a result of your renewed commitment to these character def defects, is going to constantly put challenges in your way that will give you the opportunity to behave differently. And you're going to get to work on these. So actually, I do do a lot of work on my character defects. I do a lot of work on my shortcomings. I just, for some reason, don't seem to have any control over when they disappear entirely. You know what I mean? Like I have to show up, I have to do my best to be a different, better person based on the spiritual principles that I learned in Overeaters Anonymous and, and recovery overall. Um, but they go of their own volition on their own time. And that's, that's how I explain the higher power thing. Um, so anyway, it was, it was a really positive experience doing the steps. I'm doing them again. Um, so I've been learning a ton uh, in that respect. It's so funny, it's just like they say, um, no matter where you are, you're always pulling back, you know, new layers of the onion. There's new things to look at, new things to work on. And um, I mean, the questions in the workbook, because I'm going through the workbook, of which I have a very love-hate relationship with the workbook. Um, because there just shouldn't be 150 questions and stuff or I'm sorry, it's just like absolutely brutal. Um, but those questions have become, they, they've been so relevant to where I am in my recovery these days that um, I'm working on exactly what I need to work on right now to, to move through my next, uh, next phase of growth. Um, so it's been great. And actually I've been doing the steps simultaneously in another program, not AA. 
um, which I guess is one of the other things that I wanted to touch on quickly that a lot of times we come in here, if this is our main problem or whatever, we think, okay, here's my main problem. Once I get this under wraps, I'm good. But a lot of times coming here is just the beginning, you know, and that it opens up new things that need to be worked on, new areas of my life that need recovery. Um, and because I want to be free, that's ultimately what it comes down to. I, I want to be free of this baggage that I'm carrying around with me. I'm always willing to step into that new work. Um, so anyway, uh, I took a ton of notes. I just want to see where I am here. I mean, I guess I did want to talk about being overseas a little bit um, because like I said, you know, you can stay abstinent anywhere, but it just gave me a sense of gratitude for this program in ways that I would not have gotten had I stayed in. I mean, I got abstinent in New York. There are meetings everywhere. You can there's just never a struggle, you know, they're every day, all day. There are tons of people, you know, um, available sponsors or whatever it is, but I moved from New York City to Cambodia. It was just me, you know, and um, I remember using Skype to call into a, a phone meeting that I had found online and needless to say, the internet is not that great in Cambodia yet and like trying to hear the call while it was buffering and like not being able to kind of pay attention and just feeling so distant from recovery made me work that much harder, you know, uh, in keeping in touch with people and reading the literature, or making meetings wherever I could. And I actually tried to start a meeting um, while I was there and people came in the beginning because they realized they had a food problem, but eventually it was just me sitting in the room. Um, and I know it's cliche to say it, but like sitting in that room by myself obviously helped me as well. And then I moved to Hong Kong from there. There was a meeting, but I couldn't get to it. And then that meeting died out. And then uh, it was just me and one or two other people. So it's just like my recovery over these past nine years have been, has been on such a, a small, intimate scale. Um, it's crazy to be on a meeting with 154 people, <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I really worked it. My home group when I was living in Hong Kong was a Skype meeting out of Ireland, you know? And uh, I did service on that, on that uh, meeting, sponsored people in Ireland. And, um, you know, my, my, my community just kind of, I pulled it in from all different points. I was talking to a woman and in Tasmania, I was talking to a guy in uh, Australia, I sponsored somebody briefly in South Korea, talking to people in Japan and, you know, all of us knowing how fragile it could be if we didn't stick together and just kind of doing the work to stay connected. It was a, a hugely positive experience. And while I was over there, I was also doing service on the regional level. Uh, for region 10 and, and flying from China down to New Zealand for uh, the, the regional service conference. And it was, um, it's funny because people make jokes that nobody wants to go to a business meeting. You know what I mean? It's just like personalities creep up. It can be very difficult, whatever. And I understand that, but it was just so touching to be in a room with all these people, all these Australians and New Zealands who had never met us, but were so focused on making sure there was going to be recovery for that one person in northern Japan, those three people in South Korea, um, how dedicated they were to us. It, it just gave me a, an appreciation of what it must have been like early days of recovery when there were just a few people and everybody was working really hard. Like we got it so easy in the United States now, you know, so easy. But being overseas made me work for it. Um, 
and it was just a, a hugely powerful experience that, uh, I mean, tell you, if you ever want to do service, get on a meeting and listen for that loner who's off somewhere far away and doesn't have contact and needs people to talk to. That might be the best thing that you could do, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know what else to say. I mean, uh, I mean, that's my whole life. <laughs> I guess I'll just say, uh, I did a lot. The last thing I'll say is I did, I've done a lot of service. Inevitably, like I said, as a man in OA, you sponsor a lot of guys because a lot of guys need sponsoring. And um, when I was living in Hong Kong, I was taking calls from France and Ireland and, and Australia, sometimes Russia. And um, I was happy to do it, but I got burned out. I was doing regional service, local service, sponsoring five, six, seven people um churning constantly and got burned out um but wasn't willing to step away because i didn't think i could i guess what i wanted to talk about is a little bit sometimes about the imperfection of sponsorship that sponsors are human and that uh sponsoring other people has given me such a, an appreciation for the time and energy other people give me that I'm so, so unbelievably considerate uh, of that now. And, um, and, and also understanding that if I'm not available to sponsor, it's okay to say no. Um, that uh, I just got to the point where I was like, I, I, I can't do any more service for a while. And I took a break and I would talk about it at meetings. I would talk about it with my sponsor. Um, and it took a while. Left. Thank you. Um, it took a while to get to the point where I was willing to, uh, to let the guilt go and, and do what I needed to take care of myself. Um, but what happened is I got a break and then I, I kind of got back on my feet and started to sponsor again. And uh, I don't know, I, I guess I really struggle with this idea that you just don't say no in program. And I think that's correct 99% of the time. Um, but there's, there's something to be said for too much service and sometimes stepping back so other people can can move up to to fill those gaps um so yeah anyway the last thing i'll send a shout out to my sponsor who's been sponsoring me for the past five years we've never been in the same room together you know which i just absolutely love we've been on the phone multiple times a week for like four or five years and um, she's been uh, incredibly good to me. And we're basically friends now, um, but such a support. And, and, and I think part of what I wanted to get across with this idea of being overseas is you don't need to be face-to-face -face in order to have a strong relationship. I, it, like, I didn't even meet the guy who got me back to room, back to the rooms, you know what I mean? Like I still have not been in the same room with my sponsor. Like there are so many ways to reach and connect with people that are just as powerful as in-person meetings. So, um, and what I like to say is, you know, all I had was Zoom <laughs> for a long time. And now all everybody does is complain about it, you know? Like, I, I get it, but, you know, it's, it's not that bad. It's still a gift that we have this. And, um, and so just hang on a little bit and, and we'll get back to those face-to-face -face meetings. But in the meantime, this is, it still works, you know, it still works and it works really well. So thanks for letting me share.
Thank you, Tom, so much. Um, we have a few minutes for questions. Um, first question is Nancy B. My name is Nancy B and I am a compulsive overeater. I came to Overeaters Anonymous um, 44 years ago. I have 44 years of abstinence and 150 pound weight loss, yippee. And um, you were fantastic. And um, I was sponsored by the founder. I know your struggle, you're very brave. Um, my question is this, um, although from where I sit, you're still kind of new, could you share with me the changes in your life? Have you kind of changed the type of people you run around with? Maybe what you do, has your program changed at all? Um, have you kind of upgraded in different ways to different ways of thinking? And can you tell us a little bit on a daily basis about for all these new people sitting here, exactly what you think the priorities are that you do every day in order to have, because a program isn't the steps, a program is what you do every day, it's not the tools. So could you talk a little about the principles and things like that? Thanks. Sure, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I turn my food over to my sponsor every day and I send her a gratitude list every day and I send her my action plan every day. So there is a very real uh, contact with her uh, every day and these things that keep me on an abstinent path for sure. You know, I have a few meetings uh, that a couple of meetings that I make every week and I'm sponsoring and my sponsee sends his food to me every day and we we talk more or less uh, every day in some form. So I think first and foremost is what are the things that we do to maintain contact that keep us at the center of the herd as opposed to the, the perimeter of the herd so we don't get picked off. You know what I mean? It's really working this thing vigilantly. Um, so it is a, a first priority for us. Um, yeah, I mean, I think those things, you know, the, I guess it's just kind of, what are the ABCs of OA recovery? What are the things I'm doing every day to, to make sure I'm staying on the beam? Um, in terms of changes, I think it's in, you know, at the end of the day, there's physical abstinence, spiritual abstinence, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and a lot of what we do in the beginning is focused on physical abstinence for very obvious reasons, but a lot of my work in recovery over these years has been on the spiritual and emotional self. So what I notice is my capacity for relationship, my capacity for love, my capacity to show up in the face of fear, my capacity to live my life on life's terms is greater than it has ever been, right? And so as a result, I have a much fuller life than I ever had before I got here. And so, you know, the things that have taken place, yes, I'm capable of weathering hardship because OA gave me a set of tools that I didn't have before I got here, but there's a lot of great stuff that happens in abstinence, you know, a lot of great stuff. And so being abstinent has given me the chance, you know, to, to live a full life. We need to buy more yeah, so anyway, uh, it, it, it allows me to be present for the good and the challenging. Um, and I didn't have that capability before, you know what I mean? And so I have a, a pretty, great pretty great life as a result. Thank you, Tom. And 
Simone has a question as well. Yeah, hi, my name is Simone. I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, thank you so much for your share. Um, it was really, I was really touched, especially by the story you told about um, Michael calling you all the time and, and then meeting him. Um, that really touched my heart. And um, I, I guess my question is, um, uh, I, um, I've struggled a lot with, uh, with relapse and taking my will back personally. And um, uh, I guess my question is, what was, what did you, what would you say you learned from that experience? What was the greatest um, gift that you got from those three years? Um, it's funny. I feel like step one is the, it's kind of the only step you can do yourself. Right, it's the uh, I can lead a horse to water type thing, but the the horse is the one that has to drink, and and so what it gave me a sense of how bad I actually wanted this, and I knew I wanted it because it. <laughs> I feel bad saying it because it's not necessarily a fluffy spiritual thing, but I meant it when I said the pain of eating finally outweighed the pain of not eating. I just could not go on the way that I was going on. And, and, and I think as a result of that, that relapse, it just kind of burned out any desire I had to try to escape. You know, I realized though maybe it was, you know, like they say, the wisdom of no escape. You know what I mean? Like nothing I, I do is gonna change this. I need to stand up and show up. Um, and so, there was that. And then I guess what comes with it is just like a, a really strong willingness to work the program and go to any lengths. Okay, I'm going to do whatever the sponsor tells me to do. I'm going to follow all the suggestions. And no matter what is in the way, whatever challenges or hurdles are between me and this thing that I need to do, like when I, when I have hustle in the early days of recovery, I know I'm on the right path. And, uh, so I, I think those are some of his first just kind of surrender and then a mobility that I did not have before that. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. We have one last question from Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. It's really nice to hear another guy talk. I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, I go into other programs that's mostly women, but as such as this one, but anyway, I'm glad, glad you're here. My question is, um, what, how did you come up with the humility to admit that you needed to add white flour? Because I'm currently accepting white flour in my body, but too many people have not told me specifically, but there's a whole lot of people out there that don't do it. And I just wonder, how did you come to the realization and, and acceptance that you needed to pursue that? Oh, that's, so it's, it's actually the opposite. I had the humility to accept that I can have it. <laughs> I just don't have it. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I tend to make healthy choices. But I think your question is like, how do you get the humility to uh, let go of anything um, that your subconscious, that your spiritual self is saying you need to let go of? You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I'm not sure. It seems like a very similar answer to the one that I just gave where nothing I ever let go of. I mean, everything I ever let go of has claw marks in it. You know what I mean? Like I just held on to it for dear life. And uh, sometimes I just have to get dragged long enough before I'm willing to give up. 
you know, um, unfortunately, I tend not to learn lessons early. I learn them very late, you know what I mean, where I'm bruised and beaten up. And a lot of times that's what happens. Like, you know, this, this is just unmanageable. You get that moment of clarity. Like, I just cannot do this anymore. But, you know, I could say the same thing about, um, I don't know what the, the rule for food is, but I remember when I was in my relapse talking to one woman and after a meeting and I was like, I can't picture my life without this one thing. And she said, oh, I haven't had that one thing in 24 years. That's time. Yeah. I wanted to kill her. <laughs> so I understand that we let it go when it's time to let it go, you know? So.